Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. Actually, we're going to cover Joshua 11 and 12 today, so why don't you turn to Joshua chapter 11, page 187. Joshua chapter 11. Our study through the book of Joshua has brought us to chapter 11, and we're going to um, study that together today and, and also consider very briefly chapter 12. As you're finding that, I want to read for you um, a quote that is, has stuck with me, and it's a popular quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is really how he begins the book. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he goes on to explain, you know, there's no greater subject, right, than knowing God, than knowing who God is, not a God of our own creation, but how, who God truly is and how he's revealed himself in his word. And I read that quote for you today because uh, today in the message we want to focus on two particular attributes of God, his power and his faithfulness. Um, and then, of course, it will also remind us of his grace and his love as we do that. But, you know, what, what a, important truths about God to remember, what important truths to be shaping our, our thoughts and our, our, our living and, and thinking as we consider God. May we be reminded that God is all-powerful, that he is Lord of all, and that he is faithful to all of his promises. And he's made... Um, precious promises to his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ and he will be faithful to every one of those. And so those are, um, that's kind of the theme that I want us to, to focus on as we, as we turn to God's word here in, in Joshua chapter 11. If, you're, if you look in your notes there in your bulletin, um, there's two headings today that I want to organize our time around. One is observing God's power and faithfulness and the second is living in light of God's power and faithfulness. And so we want to, those are kind of the two uh, uh, components that we want to focus on today. And, and with each one of those headings, we'll first consider um, how we observe God's power and faithfulness in the, in, in the lives of Joshua and the Israelites and God's dealings with them. And then, of course, we want to apply it to our lives today as, as believers in the New Covenant. So that gives you an idea of where we're, we're heading today, observing God's power and faithfulness and living in light of God's power and faithfulness. So look with me at verse 1 of Joshua 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, now what is this? Well, it's, if you recall, I know it's been a couple weeks since we studied Joshua, but it's referring back to the events of chapter 10, Joshua's, or I should say Israel's conquest of the southern kings. So now we have this king of a Canaanite city, state, we could call it, up in northern Canaan. And he's heard of how God has delivered all these southern um, kings into the hands of Israel. And so when he hears of this, look at his reaction. He sent to, (laughs) now you get to watch me struggle with these names, right? Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of 
Shimron and to the king of Akshpa and the kings who were in the northern hill country and the Arabah south of Chinnereth and in the lowland of the Naphtori on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So what is he doing here? He's just like we saw in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we saw the southern uh, Amorite kings form this coalition. They're like, man, we got to stop the Israelites, right? They're, they're getting too powerful. They're conquering too many people. And so they, they form this coalition to try to go against Joshua and, and Israel. And, of course, God powerfully <laughs> defeated those Amorite kings, right? Well, now um, the nations, again, are raging against the Lord and his people. Uh, now it's the northern kings who are doing this. And kind of the ringleader is this Jabin, king of Hazor. And so he's reaching out to all the different areas up in northern Canaan and saying, come on, let's form together. Let's, let's all join our forces together and oppose Israel. And look what, look, uh, that's exactly what they do. And look at the result in, in verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Verse 5, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miriam to fight against Israel. And so, wow, when you, you, you try to picture what that must have looked like, and I know in, in the movies we see all these, you know, CGI things, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know, just armies as, as far as the eye can see, right? And that's literally what this was. A great horde of, of people gathered against Israel, as many as the sand on the seashore, right? And, you know, I think about the Abrahamic covenant and how God used that metaphor. Try to count the number of stars in the sky. Try, try to count the number of, the number of uh, how much sand is in the, in the, in the uh, seashore, Right? But that was for a good reason, right? That was, he was saying, that's how many uh, descendants I'm going to give you, Abraham. But now here's like a negative metaphor of that, right? Here's how many enemies are gathered against Israel. As many as the sand that is on the seashore. A great horde. And as you meditate on verses 4 and 5, what we should come away with is that this is an overwhelming enemy. They are so numerous. They are not only numerous, but they are powerful they're sophisticated right they have horses they have chariots they're they're mighty in number and they're mighty in weaponry and they've come together as one against Israel and so the enemy is overwhelming the enemy is powerful imagine how scary this must have seemed to Israel as they hear about this and as they're as they're you know coming and starting to picture this but look at what God says In verse 6 to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so the Lord promises Joshua that Israel will be victorious. And we'd have to say, but how? How is that even possible? How can Israel defeat so great an enemy, this great horde with all their mighty uh, weaponry? How is Israel going to be able to do that? I mean, are they just super sophisticated fighters, right? Are they like, you know, supermen? No. The, the text tells us how, right? Because the Lord is going to give them over to Israel. 
And we've seen that language several times in the book of Joshua that the battle belongs to the Lord and he is the almighty one and he's going to deliver the enemy of Israel's the enemies of Israel into their hands. But like we saw last time in chapter 10, Israel still has to fight, don't they? I mean, they're given these promises. They know that God is for them. They know that God is, is fighting for them and will deliver the enemy into their hands. But Israel has to step out in faith and fight. They don't sit back and do nothing. They go forth and they fight in the assurance of God's promises. So that's what they do in verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merriam and fell upon them. Here it is again, verse 8. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, just like he said he would, right? Who struck them and chased them as far as uh, great Sidon of Mishpareth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So if you recall in the, in the battle in the southern kingdom, uh, in, that, in chapter 10, Joshua had Israel march all night to surprise attack the enemy. And a similar thing is happening here where Joshua is showing that same kind of ingenuity in, in attacking the enemy suddenly by the waters of Miriam where the enemy had first gathered. And if you would do a study of the geography of this, you'd, you'd realize that uh, this must have been where they gathered, but it's actually about... Uh, over 4,000 feet above sea level, there's hills and, and things that are not down in the valleys yet. And so Joshua strikes there quickly before they can get down in the valleys and use their chariots, you know, um, to, to the maximum effect. And so again, in, in assurance, with the assurance of God's promise of victory, the Joshua and Israel moves forward in, in faith and in... in um, obedience and just as the Lord promised he gives the Canaanites into the hands of Israel and Israel defeats this massive army and we also see something we're going to see throughout the chapter Joshua obeys the Lord by burning their chariots and hamstringing their horses and uh, that's that's not killing the horses right that's just cutting a large tendon behind its its hind knees it's kind of a humane way of, of rendering the horse inoperable to be able to be used in battle, but yet it, it's still alive and can, you know, have a good life otherwise. But why would, he, why would God command them to do that, by the way? Why burn their chariots and hamstring their horses? Well, because he doesn't want Israel to look to military strength. He doesn't want Israel to depend on weapons for their success he wants Israel to continue to depend on the Lord for their victories and that's the truth that we see throughout the Old Testament Isaiah 31 11 says woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in other words it's still part of the woe woe to those who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but do not look to the Holy One of Israel so it's saying, woe to those who would trust in, in man's ability. Woe to those who would trust in man's military might rather than looking to the Lord. That's why conversely we see King David declare in Psalm 20 verse 7, a verse that may be familiar to you, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
You see what he's saying there? It's Yahweh. He's, he says, we're not trusting in what man can do. We're trusting in the covenant promises of God. We're trusting in the fact that, that God has graciously uh, committed himself to us, that he is our God and we are his people, and he's, he's promised to, to provide for us, and we're trusting in that. This is one of the ways that Israel was to be distinct from the other nations, right? The pagan, the pagan nations trusted in their own strength and wisdom, but Israel was to be different, right? Think about, I mean, so much of the way God set up Israel under the Mosaic Covenant was showing that they were distinct and that they were trusting in the Lord, you know, not working on the Sabbath, uh, these types of things, not trusting in chariots and horses, but relying on God to provide for them, relying on the Lord, their God, to protect them and give them the victory. And so now we come to verse 10 as it continues to describe the, the victory that God is giving Joshua and in Israel, verse 10, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, right? We've, we see that. He, this was kind of like the, the ringleader of that resistance coming from the north. Verse 11, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood up on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. You see the emphasis there? God, through Moses, had commanded Israel, right, what they were to do as they went into the promised land. We've looked at a lot of those verses already in our study through Joshua. You see that in Deuteronomy as he's preparing this generation to enter into the land of Canaan. And now Joshua is faithfully carrying out those commands. He's, he's passing on those commands to, his, to the, to the uh, armies of Israel, and they are obeying the voice of the Lord. And so the only city they burn is Hazor. Again, that's um, just like we saw with, with Ai and with Jericho. Those were the cities that they, they burned uh, in, as a symbolic way of, of devoting it to the Lord. But the other cities they were allowed to, to take for plunder. But they uh, obeyed the Lord in, in devoting them all to destruction. Verse tw- uh, 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. We saw that earlier. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And so now we're getting into really like kind of a sum, summaries of, of the conquest, right? Really here in chapter 11 and then 12, it's, it's wrapping up the conquest. And then once we get to chapter 13, it's like a whole new section of of, of the book, it's talking about um, 
um, uh, dispersing the land as an inheritance. But what we see in this summary is just how God is being faithful to his promises and how he's powerfully delivering these, these um, Canaanite uh, cities into the hands of Israel, just as he said he would do. And this, uh, there in verse 20, it talks about the Lord hardening their hearts. And, and again, you can read that in how God dealt with, with Pharaoh. You read that in, in Romans 1. It kind of speaks to that as well. And what we understand from that is this is really... This, this is God giving people over to their own hard-heartedness and their own sin. It's God removing this, that prevenient grace, as the theologians say, and just, and just allowing people to, be, to, to go where their evil desires are taking them. And so these people that rebelled against the Lord and rebelled against Israel, they were doing that because they did not want God to be ruler over them. They said, we are going to worship our gods, we're going to be... Uh, you know, our own gods. We do not believe, even despite all the evidence before us, we do not believe that the, that the God of Israel is, should be Lord over us. And again, Romans 1 is a good parallel passage for us in the New Testament that God has made himself known through creation and, and his divine attributes are clearly seen. But yet man suppresses that truth. Why? Because of their wickedness. And so it's not that the truth is not available to them, it's that man doesn't want to acknowledge that truth. And so they, they harden their hearts, and God then gives them over to that. And so that's what we see here, and, and in doing that, in the conquest, that's, that's why so many of these nations were actually um, attacking Israel. That was God's way of, of, of accomplishing the conquest, but it took a long time. Again, it may sound quickly to us here as we read through it, but verse 18 reminds us Joshua made war a long time. Um, as they calculate it and as they look at uh, Caleb's age, remember Joshua and Caleb were the only old men who, um, from the first generation of Israelites that had trusted the Lord to give them the land and they were the only ones who didn't die in the wilderness. And later we're going to find out Caleb's age and then you can do some calculations there and realize it took about seven years for the conquest to be carried out so this was a long time uh, again we read more of kind of the summary here in verse uh, 21 and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron from Deber from Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war again that last verse is kind of pointing us forward to the next part of the book but you see the, the faithfulness of God. He's keeping his promises. And the only thing I would point out from that passage there is how they defeated the, the Anakim. Who were the Anakim? Those were the giants of the land. Well, think back to the first generation of Israelites uh, under Moses. When, when Moses sent out the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, what was the report that 10 of them brought back? Oh, the people are too big. We look like grasshoppers before them, right? They're giants, and, and they didn't trust in the Lord to be able to provide for them. And that's why then, you know, God um, judged them, and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, one year for every day that the spies were in the land, and, and that whole generation died off. 
right? Not having received the, the blessings of the promised land. But here now we see God is powerful and God is faithful. He defeats even these giants. Why? Because the Lord is fighting for Israel. And yes, in Israel's own strength, they wouldn't stand a chance. But God is the almighty God and ruler of all. And he is fighting for them. And so, again, as we look at chapter 11 as a whole, I just, that's what I want us to see is just the, the power and the, the faithfulness of God in his dealings with Joshua. Right? The way he, he provided for them. The way he allowed them to defeat massive armies. The way he gave Israel strength to fight. The way he hardened the hearts of, of their enemies to keep attacking Israel. The way he gave Israel the land. Um, little by little, as he said, he enabled them to persevere and fight for year after year. But he was faithful to his promises. And then chapter Uh, 12 serves as kind of like an ongoing testimony of the power and faithfulness of God. I'm not going to read all all these names, but you just notice the headings there. It starts off the kings defeated by Moses, right? It says, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan uh, toward the east, right? Toward the sunrise. This is before they crossed the Jordan River. God had gave them victory over some Amorite kings over there and it lists them. And then now, down in verse, verse 7 and for the rest of the chapter, it lists all these kings that they defeated once they were in the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And again, you go through this and it's like, this is king after king after king. And this is, this is a testimony, right? This recording this in chapter 12, that's going to serve as an ongoing testimony to the, to the Israelites of the power and faithfulness of God. For generations to come, Israel could look back to this record and be reminded of all the victories that God gave Israel. They could look back and be reminded how God powerfully fought for Israel, causing walls to fall, raining down hailstones, making the sun stand still, how the Lord showed his power by giving Israel strength to to march all night, to to surprise attack, to, to fight, how he gave them wisdom and how they carried out these attacks, how he enabled them to fight valiantly and defeat their enemies. And so this list of kings would be a testimony that God is faithful to his promises. Back in Deuteronomy, before Israel had ever entered Canaan, God promised to drive out all the Canaanites and he kept his promise. And you can go even further back, right? God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give their descendants the land and now he has done it. And so we see the power and the faithfulness of God in the conquest. And then... As we think about our lives, we, I want us to think about how we see, observe, right? That's the heading. Observe the power and faithfulness of God in the gospel, in, in the coming of Christ. Think about, think about the coming of Christ. For hundreds of years, God had been promising to send the Messiah to deliver his people. Again, kind of working backwards through the Old Testament. The prophets had promised this. The Davidic covenant had promised this. The sacrifices under the law had pointed toward this. The Abrahamic covenant had promised this. You go all the way back to that gracious promise given to Eve right after the fall. Promising that that one of her descendants would crush the, the head of the serpent. And God kept that promise. And he delivered in a more powerful way than they could ever have imagined. They were longing for a king, 
right, to defeat their enemies and to rule over them in righteousness. But really, I mean, any old king could perhaps deliver them from physical bondage, right? But Christ did something far more powerful for his people. He delivered their, and should we say, our very souls from slavery to sin and death. Far more than simply defeating physical enemies, Jesus defeated our greatest enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And so the coming of Christ, loved ones, shows God's power and his faithfulness to his promises. Think about it. Death was overpowered by Christ. That death is our last and greatest enemy, but it was defeated when Christ rose from the dead on that that third day. Satan himself was dealt a lethal blow. Right? His doom is sure, as we sang last week. That the great enemy of our souls has been defeated and will one day be destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire forever. Sin itself was defeated. The grave was overwhelmed. The finished work of Christ is the ultimate display of God's power and faithfulness. So yes, we observe God's power and faithfulness in in the conquest, but we especially observe God's power and faithfulness in the coming of Christ. And so may that be a a constant encouragement to us and and a reminder to us. And then the last thing I want us to do under this heading is think about God's power and faithfulness to you personally and how he applied the work of Christ to your life and then how he's been faithful to you all these years. Take a moment, observe God's power and faithfulness shown to you personally. God's power to call you out of darkness. God's power to make you a new creation in Christ. We're all, we're all new creations, the Bible says. That, that resurrection has already begun in us. God's power to give you faith in Christ and love for God. God's power to redeem you from slavery to sin and to grow you in Christ. And yes, we still have a lot of growing to do. And I know we get discouraged because we still struggle with our sin. But we can say, by God's grace, I know I'm not yet who I need to be, but by God's grace, I'm not who I once was. God has done a mighty work in me and he's been faithful to, to provide for me, to give me the daily grace, the daily faith to abide in Christ and, to, and his spirit is, is transforming me. Yes, I wish I saw more fruit, but yet by God's grace, there is fruit there. There is love for God. There is love for God's people. There is a desire to please God and walk in holiness. And just like they could look back on the, the list of kings, perhaps we can look back and, and say, you know, This is how I used to be. This is the sin I used to struggle with. Or this is what I used to believe about about Christ. This is what I used to think life was all about. And those things are not true anymore. Those things have been defeated. By God's grace, I'm a new person. And I love hearing you, you share those testimonies about that. As you look back on your life, think about the power of God, the grace of God, his powerful grace at work in your life. And then again, we're talking about the power of God and the faithfulness of God. And as you look over your life, think about the faithfulness of God. How faithful he's been. God has been faithful to preserve you through trials. Some of you have gone through incredible trials and are going through very difficult ones even now. And yet God in his grace 
gives you the daily strength, daily faith, and preserves you, keeps you following Christ. That's, that's evidence of his faithfulness, evidence of his power and love. God has been faithful to protect you from the evil one. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. God is faithful. He's been faithful to, to provide for us. He's been faithful to discipline us in love that we would learn and grow in holiness. He's been faithful to bring encouragement into your life. Whether it was a sermon, a song, a note, somehow God pointed you back to his word. And it, think about all the different times that you were discouraged, you, you, were, you were struggling, and at just the right time, God brought someone into your life, a brother or sister in Christ, to speak the truth into your life. A, a brother or sister in Christ to listen, to, to, to maybe weep with you, to, to pray with you to love on you. That was God showing his faithfulness to you. All those times when when your faith was fickle, God was faithful to you. Those times when you were distant, God kept drawing you near to him. When you were weary, God was faithful to strengthen you. And all those times that you and I have sinned, God has been faithful to forgive us. He's been faithful to love. He's been faithful to forgive. He's been faithful to to comfort our hurts, faithful to calm our fears, faithful to provide ways of escape when tempted, faithful to guide us in our decisions that we need to make, faithful to provide employment, faithful to provide the health and strength we need, the relationships, the food, the shelter, the clothing. God is so faithful to his people. And so that was... Really, one of my main goals today is just to get us to observe those things, right? Get us to remember those things. Because we need those reminders because we get, we get in busy in the, in the struggles of life and, and we're kind of like Peter. We, we take our eyes off the Lord and, and who he is and what he's done and we, we see the waves and we, we, start, we feel ourselves starting to sink, right? But no, let's, let's remember and observe and rejoice in God's faithfulness. And so then that leads us to our second heading, living in light of God's power and faithfulness. And I, I just have a few applications that I want to share with you. And, 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 you know, part of it was just thinking about the truths of God's power and faithfulness, but I especially tried to observe um, principles we see in, in Joshua's and Israel's um, uh, obedience here to the Lord. How can we live then in light of God's power and faithfulness? Well, here's an important way. Don't live in fear, but trust the Lord. Don't live in fear, but trust the Lord. Right? Remember how chapter 11 was at the beginning? (laughs) It's describing the overwhelming enemy, this great horde with their chariots and their horses and numbering as like the sand in the seashore. And yet, what does God tell Joshua? Do not be afraid. Basically, he said, because I'm fighting for you. I'm with you, right? I'm going to give them over to your hand. Do not be afraid. You're looking at the enemy. You're looking at the, the, the difficulties. Look at who I am, he says. And so that's what we need to do as well, right? Remember God's power and faithfulness. Almighty God was on their side, and he promised to deliver them, and he was faithful to that promise. And likewise, as Christians, even more so, we could say, as Christians, we know that God is on our side. He loves us. He has saved us through his son, and he will never leave us or forsake us. 
I referenced Romans 8 earlier. I want to read just a couple of verses uh, from the end of that chapter. Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we don't need to live in fear, but we just need to trust the Lord. And know that he is for us. And though we face troubles and suffering in this life, God is faithful. And he will never leave us or forsake us. He will always love us. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yeah, I know, I, I believe those things, but I do still get afraid, right? And, and that's understandable, and that's why I like Psalm 56, verse 3. It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And then later in, in that Psalm, verse 9, it says, this I know, that God is for me. Just like we heard in Romans 8, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. And so, yes, when we're, when we, as we live this life in the already and not yet, right, we're going to be afraid. We're going to face uh, circumstances and, and, and battle the sin that remains, and it's going to cause us to be afraid. But we don't stay there, and we shouldn't stay there very long. And that's why the psalmist says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, and so we, we, we take our eyes off of ourselves, we take our eyes off of our struggles, and we look to God. We say, you are powerful, you are faithful, you are gracious. And we re- speak that truth to ourselves. I know that God is for me. Think about that, loved ones. The creator of all things, the sovereign ruler, like we sang, the sovereign ruler of all nations, the final judge before whom we will all stand, is for us. And so we truly have nothing to fear, ultimately. God is powerful. He is faithful. He has committed himself to you by his grace. And so when you go through a a, a painful trial and when you're afraid, remember that God is powerful and faithful, that he will never leave you or forsake you, and that he's even promised to be using that trial, that he's powerfully using those circumstances and that pain why, how? To sanctify you. To grow you. He's using it for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And when we look out over, over this world and we, and we fear for the future of America, and, and as we think about that, we fear for the future of our families. What's it going to be like for them in this, in this world, in this country perhaps? We can have peace even as we think about that. How? How? Well, we know that God is in control and that God is faithful. He will be with his people. No matter what happens to this country, no matter what happens to the the economy, God will give grace to his people. God will give grace to Christians to see them through. I mean, the testimony of the persecuted church reminds us of that, doesn't it? God gives grace 
And so we don't need to live in fear. So please, loved ones. And I'm right there with you, right? When, when, when we're afraid, let's put our trust in the Lord. He is powerful and he's faithful. Second application. Let us walk by faith and obedience to Christ's commands. Walk by faith and obedience to Christ's commands. Again, I tried to point it out as we went through, but it, it was definitely an emphasis in that chapter, wasn't it? That knowing that God is, is powerful, knowing that God is faithful, knowing that God had promised good for Joshua and, and the Israelites, moved them forward in obedience. Likewise for us, God's power and faithfulness should spur us on to obedience. All right, think about the connection there with me. And I just have some, some examples here. I will, by God's grace, I will daily seek the Lord in the word and prayer, knowing he is faithful to meet with me and nourish my soul. Right? I will flee temptation and fight for sexual purity, knowing God is faithful and he will always provide a way of escape, as we heard in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I will keep sowing the word of God into my family, knowing that God is powerful and that he can give them new hearts that love him and want to follow him. I will battle sin in my life by memorizing God's word and seeking accountability, believing that God by his power can give me victory and can change me and grow me. Because God is powerful and faithful, I will step outside my comfort zone and tell others about Jesus, knowing that he will be with me and that he can do great things for his glory. Many examples we could think of. The power of God, the faithfulness of God should, should motivate us and encourage us in our obedience to him. Thirdly, let us live in daily dependence on the Lord. Like Israel in the Old Testament, we are not to depend on our own ability, abilities. Rather, we are to rely on the Lord. We looked at that verse, right? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What would our version of that be? <laughs> some trust in politicians and some in 401ks. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in education and some in personal strength. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And again, as I say that, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, let go and let God, right? We just talked about that. No, we walk forward in obedience. So let us, let us work hard. Let us do our best. But our ultimate hope is not in ourselves, but it's in the Lord. And so, yes, we work hard at our jobs, but we're trusting in the Lord to, to provide for us, to let us find favor. Uh, again, should we get fired, he'll provide something else. We're to be faithful to the Lord no matter the cost. We train and improve and, and try to use the wisdom that God gives us, but we look to the Lord to direct our steps. Right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Rather, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And so, yes, we seek to be an informed voter. And we go out and we vote, right? But our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who rules over all. We serve faithfully with the strength that God provides, but we trust God to grow his church. We plant and we water, but we pray for God to give the growth because he's the only one who can do it. 
And so let us rely on him. Knowing that God is powerful and faithful means I do not rely on my own strength, but I daily ask God for his help to do what he's calling me to do. Father, please help me to love and serve my family today. Father, please give me the grace to die to self and put others' needs above my own. Father, please help me obey and do what is right in this situation. Let that constantly be the the, the cry of our heart, the attitude of of our heart. And then lastly, because God is powerful and faithful, let us persevere knowing that Christ has secured the final victory. And again, I remind us of verse 18 of Joshua 11, right? Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Likewise, the Christian life is, is, a, is a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It requires perseverance by God's grace. But because God is powerful and faithful, we can persevere knowing that Christ has already secured the final victory. And I was reminded of 2 Timothy 1.12 where Paul says that he perseveres in his calling even though it involves great suffering. Why? Here, here's what it says. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knew that his obedience was not in vain. He knew that his suffering was not in vain because God is powerful and faithful. He knew that God was powerfully working through him to glorify the name of Christ and that God is faithful to all his his promises and that there was coming a day when the Lord Jesus would return in power and glory and accomplish the final victory. And we still look forward to that day, don't we? Come Lord Jesus, we long for that day. And because we know God is faithful, we know that Jesus is coming back. And one day our faith will become sight. One day our enemies will be destroyed. One day our remaining sin will be eradicated forever. One day our bodies will be raised. One day our service will be rewarded. And Christ and his people will be vindicated. So as Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Amen. And you guys are an encouragement to me. And and what a blessing for us to be able to come together um, weekly and, and come together even throughout the week and encourage one another in our walks with the Lord. And now we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. Um, So if the men who are going to serve us could come forward, please.